This is TechSnap, episode 405, recorded June 11th, 2019. Hello, and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting Systems, Network, and Administration Podcast. My name is Wes, and I'm very pleased to be joined with Mr. Jim Salter. Welcome to the show, Jim. What's up, Wes? Now, as we sit here on June Patch Tuesday, there's one update in particular that everyone has been talking about, and I think with good reason. Of course, that's BlueKeep. BlueKeep is a vulnerability in Microsoft's implementation of the remote desktop protocol, and it's particularly troubling because it's it's pre-authentication and it doesn't require user interaction. This means it could be highly warmable and reminds many experts of the WannaCry attack from just a few years ago. Recent estimates put the number of vulnerable machines at possibly over 1 million. And that's why it's particularly important today to pay attention to your updates. So BlueKeep is basically just the latest vulnerability that has uh, hit us as a result of the Shadow Brokers leak of the NSA's toolkits. Uh, the last one was WannaCry, and uh, BlueKeep is another of the same, but BlueKeep attacks the remote desktop pro- services protocol. The same service that you use to remote control your machines, because you know the username and password, can allow an arbitrary attacker to control those same machines without username, password, or anything else if they understand a particular vulnerability in the remote desktop protocol that BlueKeep exploits. In particular, if you have remote desktop protocol forwarded out to the internet, you know, if you've got uh, port 3389 forwarded through your firewall so that you've got this nice, convenient way to control your desktop from where you happen to be, stop that. Most folks don't have the best Windows passwords in the world, and uh, just there's there's too much going on with that protocol and the way that it ties natively to, uh, you know, Windows's own very complex uh, authentication schemes. And it's, it's just not something you should be comfortable with touching the internet. If you want to RDP the machine that's sitting in your house, don't forward a RDP through your firewall, forward, you know, a VPN through the firewall, open VPN or WireGuard, or if you're really old school, maybe one of the old IPsec VPNs and connect over that and then access your RDP that way. But don't just let everybody in the world have a, have a whack directly at RDP on your machine. It's not good hygiene. You might also just want to disable remote desktop services if that's something you're not using or are using some other solution for. No reason to leave it running, waiting to be attacked. Well, I mean, to be fair, uh, you know, remote desktop services is not going to be enabled by default on Windows 7 or Windows 10. I don't believe it was on XP either. It's not going to be on unless you turned it on. And, and I imagine people are, are worried about, you know, large installations of Windows sitting, um, perhaps installed in business locations that may be vulnerable and just haven't seen many updates. I noted this was one of those dangerous enough releases that Microsoft gave free patches out for some of their older unsupported or only supported if you pay us lots of money OSs like Windows XP. I said a little while ago that, uh, you know, remote desktop services is not going to be running unless you specifically enabled it because it's not a service that's on by default. But I will say, you know, those of you who administer fairly sizable offices, maybe you've got 50, 100, 200 desktops, uh, you know, this is something that you really should not just have 
uh, you know, group policy automatically enabling remote desktop services on all the desktops in your office because it's convenient. Um, when you have vulnerabilities like this with RDP, you're not only exposing yourself to problems of the internet and you can't necessarily just say, oh, well, I'm fine because yeah, I've got this on on all my machines, but nobody can touch it from the internet. You're also potentially exposing yourself to, you know, worm related problems. Maybe one of your users falls for a phishing scam. The phishing scam downloads a payload that includes a worm that targets, you know, something like uh, eternal uh, blue keep. And, you know, now you have an issue that that one machine that got infected may very easily infect all 200 desktops on your network. And what could have started out as a minor problem becomes an absolutely critical one. And, you know, let's face it, most of your users are probably not going to be using RDP at all. Even if they are using RDP, most of your users are probably only going to really need to use it to actually remote control their machine from home. They're not necessarily going to need to remote control one machine across the office, you know, from another machine. And so, again, you can limit your vulnerability to these kind of worms tremendously by using Windows Firewall and say, hey, if I don't expect one user to be using RDP to control another user's machine across the office... But I do need those users to be able to control their machines from home. Well, use Windows Firewall to only expose RDP to the corporate VPN, not to the LAN. Oh, yeah. This is a great example of how some, you know, sane, thoughtful network architecture, firewall, and security policies can greatly reduce some of your attack surface. Now, Wes, you know all those words don't belong together in the same sentence. I mean, like, sane, corporate, network, security. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Uh, And unfortunately, that's why this is such a big problem. Even the NSA, you know, normally very quiet, especially on things linked back to them. They put out a notice as well, advising people that, you know, you you really should patch. And it's again, because of what you hit on, Jim, this thing's wormable. We talk about lots of different vulnerabilities and attacks that, you know, require some sort of extra service to be running with a really bad configuration, or maybe the user has to interact with the service. In this case, you know, if if you have this remote desktop service available and running on your Windows machine, you don't have to do anything else. And what could have been a tiny little attack, suddenly, you know, you've got access. It pairs with all the other instances where we see, you know, we see various CVEs fly by and maybe you're not too worried about it because it says, you know, the attacker needs access. They need to be your user, they need local access or to have an account or access to an account on your box. And only then can they do something like privilege escalation. Well, with something like BlueKeep, once they're in, all the rest of those vulnerabilities, they're fair game. And, you know, one reason that the NSA is going to be so interested in this one, Wes, you know uh, where you are going to find a lot of older machines that don't get patches applied regularly that absolutely have RDP exposed, right? Hopefully not government machines. Yeah, absolutely government machines, but uh, that wasn't exactly where I was headed with that. Um, In particular, you're going to see a lot of that in industrial control machines and, you know, in machines that control the power grid. So, you know, your issue with a really wormable exploit like this that targets something like RDP, it's just tailor-made for taking down a power company. Right. I mean, how many of us have seen really old appliances or devices that are controlled from a machine over some sort of horrible parallel port that requires an ancient operating system long out of support to operate. And, you know, there's just bad economic incentives for these sorts of situations. 
sitting there running Windows XP unpatched for, for a decade on, waiting to be attacked. If that wasn't bad enough, well, there's another great reason you really shouldn't be exposing RDP to the internet, and that's a botnet called Goldbrute. Bluekeep is already a problem, and it's a vulnerability that allows anybody to take over your machine that has remote desktop services exposed. Goldbrute doesn't bother with technical vulnerabilities. It's just trying to brute force every RDP server it can find exposed to the internet. And, you know, this is actually the first and foremost reason I always advise anybody, especially all of my clients, look, you can't expose RDP directly to the internet. Because no matter what you do, if you have a substantial number of users, a lot of them are going to have really, really stupid passwords. They're going to reuse that passwords with websites that get compromised. Uh, you know, they're going to try to get around your password strength rules by just, you know, tacking a one on the end and calling it a day. Um, and, you know, all of these really, really poor security hygiene habits that your users have, if you expose RDP, you're exposing all of those to the Internet. And that's just something that you don't want to do precisely because of things like Goldbrute. If one of your users has, you know, password one as their password, and you've got RDP for any machine they can log into exposed to the internet, then Goldbrute's going to find that, it's going to break into it, and it's going to let its masters know, hey, you can log in right over here. Just type in password one. Ah, dang it, Jim. That's my favorite password. I better go change some things. You got to put a bang on the end, right? <laughs> oh, that's right. That's the trick. Now, by a sharp contrast, you know, if you uh, if you need your users to be able to remote control machines over the Internet and you've done what I recommended, which is, you know, you give them VPN access and you let them RDP over the VPN. Now, these folks running this Goldbrute botnet, instead of trying to brute force passwords that users type in every single day, they're left trying to, you know, brute force a 2048 bit key. And that's just not going to happen. Now, it might be worth noting here. RDP is not all bad, and and really even Bluekeep, it's it's not a flaw in RDP itself. It, it's really in Microsoft's implementation. And Jim, you and I were talking earlier. You actually like RDP a lot, right? Yeah, I love RDP. Um, honestly, I'd love to hate it because you know it's it's Microsoft, and well, you know me. But uh, the fact is, it's the most efficient you know over the network remote control protocol I've ever used. It's considerably better than VNC, not that that's saying much, but it's even still significantly faster than Spice, you know, the, the newer protocol that came out of Red Hat uh, for doing control of uh, mostly of virtual machines, although it can be used for anything RDP can. Um, but there's always significantly higher latency when I have to remote control machines with anything other than Windows RDP. Honestly, you know, even when I was experimenting with using XRDP to uh, proxy VNC on an Ubuntu machine to remote desktop so that I could use RDP to actually get access to an Ubuntu desktop, you know, back in the day. I mean, even that works like gangbusters. The The real issue that, you know, I, I keep wanting to hammer on until people do not expose RDP to the internet is uh, it's not so much the remote desktop part of it at all, it's the authentication. You know, again, you've got issues with, you know, your users and their stupid passwords. And also just, I, I don't know if RDP is ever really going to have the kind of security attention paid to it. And it's certainly not likely ever to be as modular and clean as, you know, for example, the SSH code base. Yeah, it does seem to unfortunately pair with some of the, you know, the, the cultures of the user base and 
SSH is nice, designed by people who you know take security seriously. And if you've got things set up right, you're using keys. Also, I think it's probably important to note that, you know, when you're using SSH to remotely control a machine, um, you know, it's it's not quite the same as RDP where you've got this, you know, giant monolithic thing where, you know, the one library does all this stuff. You know, ultimately at the end of it, SSH, it, it really is more designed like a VPN tunnel. And then you can do other things on top of it. But at its heart, SSH really isn't intended to be much more than, you know, a way to reliably and securely move bytes from one end of the network to the other. Everything else gets layered on top of that. By contrast, you know, remote desktop, it's it's a great big everything all in one thing. Like, you know, you're not going to you're not going to tunnel some other traffic over RDP really. There's another complicating factor when it comes to keeping systems safe from vulnerabilities like BlueKeep. And unfortunately, that's users' attitudes to updates. Especially recently, there's a view of Windows 10 and and other Windows updates being, let's just say, a bit dicey. So there's there's been a proliferation of guides and updates and how-tos either to disable Windows updates or just information about which updates you should or shouldn't apply, at least by that author's reasoning. Jim, I'm curious what you think. What's your policy on your serious systems around updates, automatic, unattended updates? What's the sane policy here? The sane policy is very clear. It's apply your freaking updates. Don't delay them. Sure, certainly don't disable them. Uh, you need your updates. You know, this is uh, th- this is not 1999 anymore. It's 2019, and anything that can be touched over the internet, basically the entire world is trying to attack it, always. I am not the biggest fan of, you know, Microsoft's QA program with their updates. I think that they could do a tremendously better job than they do, but at the end of the day, there is far, far more risk in leaving your systems unpatched to real exploits and vulnerabilities that are out there than there is to, you know, anything that's coming out of, uh, of Redmond security upgrade queue. Uh, all of my machines, desktop or server, they have automatic updates turned on period. Um, I don't have any delays. I don't have, you know, a, uh, Oh, well, no updates unless the administrator has approved it, you know, via this WSUS server, none of that crap. No, no, no. If you know, there's a vulnerability, I want it patched and I want it patched now. So what would you say to those administrators concerned for the safety and uptime? You know, if you do have concerns, as you said, about some of the QA of, of the updates, aren't you risking some of your business operations? You're risking your business operations no matter what you do. Life is a risk. The only question is, what's riskier? Risking leaving your systems unpatched or, you know, risking that you'll have a, a, ser- a severe problem out of an update that came out of Redmond on a patch Tuesday. And your risks are tremendously worse leaving the system unpatched than they are applying, you know, the updates. Now, you know, I'm, I'm not just kind of saying this out of the blue. Um, There are certainly admins out there who have to deal with more systems than I do. But with that said, I'm the direct line of support for somewhere around 500 windows VMs and desktop machines. And, uh, you know, somewhere probably around 150 or 200, uh, you know, Linux or BSD machines. And I do absolutely encounter some problems with updates that have, that, that went bad and, uh, screw up machines out of that pool of, uh, 500 plus Windows machines. 
there's probably one or two machines per year that uh, effectively get bricked by a bad update. And I have to, uh, you know, roll them back to an earlier snapshot or what have you. In some cases, there might be another way around it, but it's generally just going to be easier for me to just roll back, you know, to the last good snapshot before the updates came in and problem solved rather than like the old days when you might have to spend anywhere from half an hour to, you know, sometimes eight or 10 hours trying to figure out how to undo the damage a really bad update did. But again, you know, this is once or twice a year out of 500 plus machines. And um, <laughs> that's just the the amount of damage that I deal with from security problems, even with security upgrades getting applied, is considerably heavier than that. So here's the thing, you know, if you're a home user and, you know, you've got one Windows desktop machine that is like, basically, this thing is your whole world. Like, you know, all your games are on it. Uh, you know, maybe it's how you watch Netflix. It's got, you know, this and that and the other. And it's just going to be an enormous nightmare to you if you have to, you know, format and reinstall that thing because you had a really, really bad update. Look, I, I mean, I, I get that. Uh, if you want to be paranoid about that, you can maybe think about like, oh, well, you know, I'll wait a, a day or two or maybe a week or two before I apply updates. But the thing is, once you introduce that delay, once you introduce that point of failure in the process of applying security upgrades, you had better take that seriously. That is your job now. If you do what almost every admin out there eventually does, who is, you know, inserted themselves into this pipeline as a single point of failure that prevents updates being applied, eventually that's exactly what you're going to do. You're going to put it off, you're going to put it off, and next thing you know, it'll be nine months since the last time you patched, and some worm comes out that's exploiting a six-month-old vulnerability, and guess what? You're still vulnerable, and you get nailed. Don't do that. Don't be that guy. Exactly, right? That was the whole reason we've been, we've been pushing for more automation, is to get rid of those little human failures that are basically inevitable. Yeah. And, you know, I will state also that, you know, of those Windows updates that go like, you know, really drastically bad and uh, need to get rolled back or whatever. Now, in my case, you know, I am usually just rolling those back, uh, you know, using a snapshot system. If you're a business admin and we're talking about your servers, uh, there's no excuse anymore. You should be able to do that. Uh, you should have virtualized servers in your infrastructure. You should not be running Windows Server on the bare metal. And, you know, if you aren't confident of your ability to roll back to an hourly snapshot that you should have at least 24 of on hand, if you don't feel confident that you can do that without issue in five or 10 minutes from when you sit down at the machine, you need to rework your infrastructure. You're behind the times. There's really no excuse for that anymore. It doesn't have to cost you a ton of money. Uh, if you don't want to buy infrastructure that does that, you can go from the ground open source and not spend a penny if that's what you're looking for. But you need to have that. Don't play romper room with it. Um, on the other hand, you know, if you're talking about your, your desktop machines... Now, again, on the business side, you know, ideally, you, you should be able to image these things. It should not be the end of the world for you to re-image somebody's desktop or laptop and have them, you know, basically up and rolling again with no more than half an hour to an hour of work. If you're a home user, well, again, things may get a little bit more difficult, but I should also mention that although I just roll back a machine to an earlier snapshot when a Windows update fails, you know, if it's, if it's a user's desktop that gets nailed, 
Um, the first line of defense is going to be, and Windows makes this very available and very easy. It says, hey, there's a big problem. We need to roll this back. Luckily, we created a system restore point before applying this update. So we're just going to roll you back to that system restore point. Now, that's not always perfect either. Every once in a while, that also screws up. That is something I have seen happen. Um, it's happened, I think, twice in all the machines that I manage over the last 10 years that, you know, an update that was bad, it was not possible to just use the system restore point, and I had to nuke that user's laptop or desktop. But again, the risk there, it's it's just penny-ante compared to the risk of letting an attacker into your system. You're really spot on. You, you do have to, in, in 2019, you should be designing and architecting your infrastructure and your systems, knowing that you need to be patching your systems, right? Like that's just, that's just part of it. Even if you aren't subject to any sort of compliance or security auditing or testing, that's, that's just being responsible. And I think we, we have a sort of cognitive bias where enabling updates or running the updates, that's an action that you're taking. So you can sort of easily see the risk. It's, it's a little harder to see the risk of not doing anything, but it's real. And, and once a worm gets into your systems, it's going to move way faster than you can. Absolutely. And, you know, another thing that you probably need to do is when you listen or, you know, read people talking about this topic, uh, you know, you, you really have to actually think about what they're saying and does this make sense or are they just telling me what I want to hear? You know, when we were putting together the notes for this show, uh, Wes went out and he found a couple of articles on Forbes and on Computer World that were just, you know, very dramatic and, oh, you know, Windows 10 updates are ugly and here's how you, literally Forbes has an article that says, here's how to stay safe by disabling automatic updates. Now, if that is not just pandering to what they expect the user want to hear and not being willing to give good advice, I don't know what is. And, you know, another one on uh, Computer World, this guy, uh, Woody on Windows, it's time to block Windows automatic updating. And, you know, the guy shills for his own website. Uh, what is it? WoodyOnWindows.com or something? No, AskWoody.com. He shills for his own website, you know, in that article on Computer World where he says it's time to block Windows automatic updating. And you go there and he's basically devoted an entire website to saying updates suck and you shouldn't apply them. Dude, what? No. Turns out the internet is often wrong, or at least it, it lacks context, right? Um, applying updates the policy around it. It should be something that either you're thinking about or you just let happen. And if you do have a lot of systems out there that you feel anxious about updating, that's probably a sign that, you know, you haven't documented how those systems are constructed well enough. Either they don't have enough backups or they can't easily be rebuilt from source or from documentation. Those are weak points, and whether it's an update that bites you or a hard drive that goes down, something's going to fail. You have to plan for it. Be be redundant, be resilient to that, and patch your systems. And no, a liberal application of thieves' oil will not keep you safe from Eternal Blue. I mean, this is just anti-vax woo all over again, right? Exactly. Now, speaking of backups... I noticed over on your Twitter, Jim, at JRSSNet, you've built something of a sexy new backup server yourself recently. Yeah, it's my new little toy. I'm uh, really happy with that build. Um, 
You know, I, so I've got a uh, I've I've got a backup server that all my machines in the house uh, replicate to hourly, and uh, you know I've got a few things outside the house that uses an offsite disaster recovery and uh, replicate to it over the internet. And uh, you know, it's always been a pretty low key box. I had this uh, god awful you know little dual core Pentium G uh, in a mid tower case, you know, sitting on a shelf. Uh, it wasn't glamorous. It didn't need to be. It just did that simple job. But, uh, you know, I got to, I was like, ah, you know, I want to have a little bit more expandability. I want this to be a little bit modern. I want it to not suck quite so much. And I found this really cool, uh, rack mount chassis that I had not used before. I use a lot of super micro chassis and, uh, they're, you know, they're high quality. They're great, but they're super duper heavy and they are, uh, they're not inexpensive. Let's put it that way. But Rosewill has this case with 12 hot swap bays in it for, uh, you know, 200 bucks. And I was like, yeah, I, I got to give that a shot. So I, uh, you know, I bought this Rosewill case and I just transplanted the crappy old Pentium G in there. And I wanted to light up a pair of new 10 terabyte HGST discs. Um, and that's when I remembered a problem that I had forgotten about with that Pentium G. I had an extra pair of old one terabyte hard drives in it because there was a bug in its BIOS that would not allow it to boot off of drives any larger than uh, one or two terabytes. I had a pair of four terabytes in there and it could access them fine, but it wouldn't boot from them. So when I wanted to pull those one T's and, you know, just have the four terabytes, the 10 terabytes in there, I couldn't get the thing to boot. So I was like, all right, there's my sign. I need to actually buy decent gear here. And uh, it was really good timing for it because I've really been wanting to experiment with uh, AMD's Ryzen processor, which is, you know, able to, all of the AMD Ryzen's are able to address ECC RAM. Oh, yes. Yeah, up until recently, unfortunately, it's really been kind of a crap show because very few motherboards supported it. And some other motherboards, you know, the they would boot with the ECC in there, but they wouldn't actually use the ECC features. So you've gone out, you've spent the extra money for ECC RAM, but it's not actually doing the whole error correcting checksum thing. But uh, ASRock finally released an ASRock rack motherboard. Um, not too cheap, but not too expensive at 269 bucks, and uh, it will actually address ECC RAM and says so. You know, it's not just like an afterthought. They actually market it as accepting ECC, so there's no real crapshoot there. So I said, heck with it. Built a new system, Ryzen 7 2700, uh, 32 gigs of DDR4 ECC, and uh, that board, and uh, yeah, it's been great. The chassis turns out to be really quiet and livable. It's got three 120 millimeter fans, you know, for intake right behind the 12 drive bays. And it's got two 80 millimeter exhaust fans. And uh, I haven't even really felt the need to replace any of them with quieter fans. It's definitely not whisper quiet, but, you know, all the noise is that nice, consistent, uh, you know, really low pitched whoosh. There's none of that nasty buzzing or, you know, whining or rattling going on. So good, clean, white noise. And as long as you're, you know, not recording a podcast right next to it, you'll probably be fine. Well, Wes, I am recording a podcast right next to it. It's about three feet away from the mic right now. That is, uh, that is pretty impressive. Now, um, how, how much did you actually have to spend here? Well, so, you know, the system itself, uh, without an expander card in it to light up all 12 bays, the motherboard itself is enough to light up the first eight out of the 12 bays. And with just that, you're looking at, uh, you know, about 750 bucks. Uh, by the time you add the, uh, eight port controller and a pair of SFF breakout cables, 
we still have not broke $1,000. We're sitting at uh, 939 plus a power supply. So you're, you know, pretty much right at a grand. Now that doesn't include discs. That's just the machine itself. But uh, I actually kind of like to price machines out that way because everybody has a different idea about, you know, how big a disc or how fast a disc they want to buy and put in there. But you certainly got all the options you could ever want with 12 days to play with. Oh, and I forgot to mention one of the best parts. Uh, one of the things that really annoys me with those big, heavy, expensive super micro boxes, I don't really want to buy the ones that only have the 2.5 inch bays that fit SSDs because the minute that you do that, somebody's going to come up with a need and you're like, ah, oh, I wish I could put one of those nice, big, cheap 10 terabyte rust drives in there and you can't. So I always get the ones that have three and a half inch bays. Now, you can fit either size drive in there, but with most cases that have hot swap, you're going to need an adapter to actually mount your 2.5-inch uh, disc into this adapter that then goes into the tray that then will plug into the system. I've definitely had to do that myself on, on many systems. Yeah, and it's more of a pain in the butt on the hot swap systems because most of the adapt. I mean, we're talking like 99% of the adapters that you see out there sold that way, they don't actually line up the SATA and the power ports in quite the right place as though it really were a three and a half inch drive. It's relatively close but relatively close is fine for when you're, you know, plugging a cable into it. It will not do whatsoever when you're sliding it into a hot swap bay where everything has to be, you know, millimeter precision. Anyway, that has been a giant pain in my butt with those super micro chassis. This little rose wheel chassis. Now, I will say, you know, the trays, they're, they're only ABS plastic. They're not metal like the ones in the super micro but they have mounting holes that fit either two and a half or three and a half inch drives natively. So whatever you want to put in there, you put it in there, you bolt it in, you slide it into the case and you're good. No adapters needed. That is beautiful. If you want to check out some of the pictures, well, you can find a link to Jim's Twitter and that tweet over at our show notes, techsnap.systems slash 405. If you would like to subscribe or contact us, you can find links there too techsnap.systems. If you'd like some other fine podcasts to listen to, well, head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you'll find many other shows. In particular, go check out the new BSD Now. We're something of a sister show as Alan June, TechSnap Progenitor, well, he's the host over on BSD Now. They've just reformatted the show over to an audio-based format, and it is great. Now's a great time to check it out. And if you'd like a little something extra in your week, well, check out the Friday Stream. Episode 6 is now available at fridaystream.com slash 6. That's going to do it for this episode of TechSnap. Thank you all for joining us. We'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.